This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Welcome, everybody, to this lunch panel on Professor Douglas Baird's contract scholarship celebrating the publication of his book, Reconstructing Contracts, a book that collects his work, old work and new work, on uh, uh, contract law. Um, so, so this is going to be a celebration of Professor Baird's uh, scholarship in the area, but hopefully in a Chicago way this will also be an opportunity to criticize Professor Baird's uh, scholarship in the area. I will not introduce the book nor the, uh, the groom, Professor Baird needs no introduction. I will let the speakers do that. All I will do is introduce our speakers, and I will probably do that one at a time before they speak. Our first speaker is Professor Stuart McCauley, the read, Malcolm Pittman Sharp Hillsdale Professor uh, at the University of, uh, of Wisconsin at Madison. Professor McCauley, this is not an exaggeration, is a legend in the area of law, law and sociology, um, and especially in contract law. Um, I think it was the, the first name that I, as a, an undergraduate student, ever heard about, you know, kind of contract scholarship was the name Macaulay and uh, uh, um, in relation to the, his work on relational contracts and, in, in fact, a, a groundbreaking work that inspired hundreds, if not thousands, of scholars to examine the law in action, how the law interacts with the norms of relationships. Many of, much of the work that has been done here in Chicago by uh, our scholars and primarily by Professor Lisa Bernstein has been following the path and developing the path started by, quote unquote, the legend here. Uh, and so without further ado, I'm not going to embarrass you anymore. I will ask you to take 15 to 20 minutes and speak to our audience. Uh, the legend, that means I'm old. <laughs> how you do that. The other thing that I, I should point out, the Malcolm Pittman Sharp Professor, where did that name come from? Well, uh, I imagine no one around here remembers, but Malcolm Pittman Sharp was Chicago's great contracts professor from the 1930s through uh, about the 1960s. And when I started doing uh, work, interviewing businessmen, interviewing lawyers, uh, I, you know, everybody was in step but me. And I was 28 years old, and uh, uh, let's say I was a little nervous about uh, what I was finding because it was a little different than what everybody else was writing, which may mean I was just crazy. So uh, you get a little worried about that, and I sent him some stuff. There was a family connection that I, I knew him, and he invited me to come down from Madison. Uh, we walked along Lake Michigan, and we talked, and uh, he had zillion ideas, but he basically told me, keep going. This is good stuff. And uh, ooh, was that uh, reassuring at times like that. And University of Wisconsin later honored me with a all-university professorship, a Hildale professorship. And the nice thing about a Hildale is you get to name it yourself. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're not tied down to what, what you find. And the, the what you have to do is it has to be somebody with a Wisconsin connection. It has to be somebody uh, important in your field. Uh, Sharp uh, was an undergraduate at Wisconsin and began his teaching career at the University of Wisconsin. So that qualifies prominent in his field, check, check, and so on. So, and I, I want to point out that before the beginning of time for everybody in the audience, I think almost, uh, I was a Bigelow Fellow at the University of Chicago. <laughs> okay, now, we, if I was brought down here to throw bricks at this book, I don't know, you know, Crossfire or something like that, I'm going to disappoint whoever was plotting that completely. I like this book. So uh, if, if I was supposed to say nasty things, I won't say it. Uh, this is a good book. And uh, a scout. Of course, it doesn't come as a great surprise. Uh, we've met long ago, but basically, uh, I've been reading him for years, and uh, uh, I knew that this was going to be a good book. Uh, 
I agree with most of it. Uh, every now and then there's a place I put a question mark in the margin or a check. And I, I talk about this, and I've done this in several articles. Not places where I know this is wrong, this is terrible, that kind of thing. But basically, well, uh, I think we want to think about this a little more, or perhaps just develop the idea. So I just call that notes in the margin. And, and uh, it, it may be that I just didn't read carefully enough. I, I do that kind of thing. So we'll, I'll, I'll say some of that. Um, we, uh, I start off, of course, by very much liking the fact that uh, Douglas Baird is the author of a thing called Contract Stories. And Contract Stories involves, uh, uh, I better look at my time, old men talk way too long. Uh, contract Stories involves digging into the background of famous cases and finding out what was going on, what was the real problem, and it enables you to take a look and ask the question, how did the courts do? Is this a sensible solution to a problem? Uh, and sometimes flipping a coin is a sensible solution to a problem. Because we can't have the conceit that all problems can be solved neat and nicely and tied up with a bow. Uh, but at least we want to know what's going on. Now, not everybody loves this kind of work. Larry Ribstein, uh, the late Larry Ribstein, uh, objected to a piece Bill Whitford and I did about the background of Hoffman versus Red Owl, which is one of the infamous cases that everybody studies and things like that. Uh, we did it quite by accident because at an alumni affair, there were, Bill Whitford found a lawyer who knew Joe Hoffman. And so 50 years after the case, we got to interview Joe Hoffman. And then we went back to the complete record and got quite a different picture of the case. Well, Ribstein had on a blog basically said, huh. Who cares? Uh, he says, uh, as legal analysts, that may be putting the rabbit in the hat right there, the case matters to us because it's the law. What makes it the law is the court's holding, which turns on the facts the court articulates, rather than the additional facts Whitford and Macaulay discover. We might now rest easier that justice was done, but who cares about that? Uh, <laughs> but Hoffman warrants discussion only because of its role as law, and the new story is completely irrelevant to that. Well, uh, you mean we spent all that time just uh, having fun and think that, that sort of thing? Uh, I, I think it's perfectly clear uh, Professor Baird and uh, Whitford and Macaulay think that Mr. Ribstein, or Professor Ribstein, had a rather narrow view of what the game is all about, a wrong view of what the game is all about. Um, for example, in, in the reconstructing contracts, we have the example of Hamer versus Sidway. Now, if you've taken a contracts course, you have suffered through Hamer versus Sidway, almost certainly. This is the uh, uh, 19th century decision uh, talking about the, really the difference between a, a gift on a condition versus a bargain. Uh, one we don't enforce, the other we do, and so forth. Uh, uncle promised his 15-year-old nephew that if he would refrain from drinking, using tobacco, swearing, and playing cards or billiards, uh, for money until he became 21, the uncle would pay the nephew $5,000. Uh, the online inflation calculator, which we can use today, but you couldn't then, uh, said what cost $5,000 in 1875, the date of the case, would cost $103,000 in 2012. So it's, it's money uh, that we're fighting over in the case. Well, um, the uncle, the, the nephew claimed, well, hey, I, I, uh, I did it. And, this sort of, and he was drinking, doing all kinds of wonderful things at 15. That's why the uncle uh, intervened uh, a, a, under this sort of thing. The, uh, he left the money with his uncle. Uh, the uncle died, and perhaps unexpectedly, and they, they hadn't uh, tied everything up and, and worked this out. In substance, uh, uh, the, uh, the nephew makes a claim against the, the state. Uh, some bankruptcy problems mean that he didn't do it directly. New York Court of Appeals decides there was a bargain, forced the promise. It's sufficient the nephew restricted uh, his lawful freedom of action. It's a bargain and not merely a conditional gift. Well, Professor Baird's story of the case looks at it from several perspectives. Uh, for example, there's a question about the, whether the nephew actually had carried out the promise. He went off to the University of Michigan and uh, he just disappeared, you see. He, he, he tells us he didn't do all these things, which he was doing before he was 15. And he's off 
all alone at the University of Michigan. Now today we know, because he would had a Facebook posting, you know, uh, swinging, a, swinging a beer or something like that, you'd have that, but, uh, you know, lately we, he had just disappeared. And had he gone to the University of Wisconsin, uh, there would be no question. I mean, it's <laughs> all right, but we don't have that, that kind of thing. Now, uh, it's also possible, as Professor Barrett has, has uh, points out, that the uncle actually had performed his promise because he had set up uh, his brother, that is the father of the, nep the nephew, uh, and the nephew in business. And maybe that was performance of the, of the situation. There are interests of the other relatives in play also. I mean, you know, this is a big family and it's the money and who's going to support uh, sisters, brothers, all kinds of things. The nephew also had gone bankrupt. There's a real question of whether or not he's uh, uh, perpetrated fraud on creditors. Oh, all kinds of good stuff in this thing. Well, what you point to, an earlier book of stories, Richard Danzig's book, was called The Capability Problem. What can courts do? What are the limits? And one of the things uh, that, that American legal realism said is, you know, the old Holmes-Williston approach uh, and so forth. Actually, it's, it's all a front. What the courts really are doing is seeking just results or results that appeal to them. And it would be better off if people came forward and uh, said what they're doing. So we should have broad standards and do this kind of thing. Well, I think that's something to take a look at. Uh, what would you do in a case like this? What is the right result in a case like this? Well, uh, we can start doing this. One of the good things, may I point out, that, that you get into in these situations is, well, how do you do a background in the case? What you got is the record, and you may have the briefs. And if you're talking an 1875 case, I don't think you can interview anybody. Uh, you're kind of limited there and so forth. But this is the problem historians cope with all the time. I mean, you, know, uh, you have to analyze what's there and come up with plausible stories, uh, but that's what you got. That is history. Uh, if somebody finds something that indicates that it's implausible, fine, do something about it. One of the things Professor Baird did quite good was he tells the story from the perspective of various people, which at least lets you focus on how would you infer things if you're talking about the trustee. How do you, how do you put together the story that the nephew would tell? How, do you, how about the sisters who, you know, they're going to be hit if this promise goes through. How do you tell that? He looks at that. I think that's, uh, that's terrific. He says, uh, Professor Baird says, the test of a formal rule should not be some inner logic, but rather the way it channels behavior. And we must continue to re reconstruct the law of contracts, uh, remembering that the test of new organizing ideas or formal rules is whether they're useful. Now here I start making some notes on the margin. How do you know? There is the interesting kind of question. Now, one of the things you've got, you see, is you, you've got a rule of law, you've got a, a, an official decision. If it's Brown versus Board of Education, Roe versus Wade, uh, Citizens United, well, maybe people talk about stuff like that. Uh, Hamer and Sidway, how much publicity was there of that, of beyond lawyers? Uh, the great trust of cases. How do people find out? Now there is one answer sometimes and that is they hire lawyers and lawyers tell them. But there's a new book out, uh, Contract in Three and a Half Minutes by Gulati and Scott, which makes the point that transaction lawyers tend not to read cases, litigators read cases. And there's a real disconnect here in our theory. And furthermore, what's happening is the large law firms more and more are under tremendous pressure to cut costs. And can we just, who do we bill if we read these cases and go change our standard forms? It's a problem. Uh, you know, not totally, but we've got that. So one of our questions then is what do we, what do we get about, you know, how do we know these things and what's going on? Um, one of the places is, well, you know, Maybe if we had clear rules, the world would be a better place. And the problem is, you know, contract law, we start teaching my students, keep saying, when are we going to learn some law? The, uh, you get an excuse because of the occurrence of a contingency, the non-occurrence of which is a basic assumption of the agreement. Uh, what does that mean? 
And the answer is, whatever you'd like. <laughs> one, of my, one of my friends in lawyer practice, he says, even better are the contract clauses that are in so many contracts. If there is a cloud in the blue, blue sky, we are uh, you know, excused from performing this contract. And you start looking at the list of excuses that goes in these things. And, Imagine a case where you'd have to perform, is what the contract sort of leaves you with. Well, all right. That's our world. Is the world so bad? Would, would clear rules really get us anywhere uh, that we're not now? Well, all right. What's the world look like in terms of contracts? Long-term continuing relationships have both their norms and have sanctions. The big sanction is I won't play anymore. I'm going to pick up my marbles and go home. And if I got something you want, uh, that's the sanction, right? I mean, that's, that's a very important one. Or the other situation that's not likely to go off the court is the reason I'm not performing is I'm broke. And, you know, suing somebody and thinking of the costs of going to court when there's no pot of gold there to dip into doesn't make much sense. And uh, people have pretty good eyesight on that. Indeed, one of the things is just the costs of litigating are going up and up. So could we uh, actually have a Hamer and Sidway today? Maybe. Could we have a Hoffman and Red Owl today? I mean, the total settlement in Hoffman and Red Owl was $1965, $10,500, of which the lawyer took $6,000. Well... <laughs> I think we have to keep stuff like that in mind uh, as, as to how this, this will come out. We do have the institution of settlement and the settling courts. If you actually get within the system, what do you find? Extreme pressure to settle. We interviewed uh, the clerks of the court that handle probates, estates, the kind of case that Hamer and Sid may would be about in Dane County, where Madison is located. And they say, we don't try those cases. What? right to try the case. Yeah, oh, you've got a right to try the case. Uh, but the, you're going to try it before a judge that thinks you shouldn't have been trying it. And essentially, uh, we're going to settle those. The court is extremely busy. You are taking the court's time. Now, yeah, sure, i got a right. But, you know, the lawyer wants to be there again tomorrow, next week, next month, and so forth. And crossing judges is the bad way to play that game. Now, sometimes, sometimes you do. But nonetheless, we just have to see that, that you've got that. Um, ADR, alternative dispute resolution, that's going on. Uh, there's a pledge that the CEOs of the largest corporations have made that they will not sue each other, that they will go to mediation first. And I interviewed uh, House Counsel at General Motors, and he said, well, we had a little go around. I think it was General Electric. And they <coughs> filed a complaint. And no, the, the presidents of the two corporations said that was a mistake. We shouldn't do that. Well, again, uh, how much is clear rules going to handle about things like that? There is, uh, Judge Marriage is famous. He was the settling judge. He, he would do things. He would get the CEOs of the corporations, these big companies. They'd go out on his uh, screen porch, Virginian, all that. They'd have mint juleps. And he'd tell them, American business leaders, there's nothing they can't do. There is a settlement for this case. Why don't you find it? <laughs> and you know, by and large, they did. <laughs> Especially when he said, you're going to settle this thing. We're not going to try this case and these kinds of things. On the other hand, uh, one of the Westinghouse cases, this was the, what do you do with the uh, spent fuel rods in a nuclear power plant? And, you know, nobody's figured out the answer to that one yet. But he had got a panel of engineers. They learned how to uh, widen the cooling pools, put more rods in. And then there's an engineering solution to a legal problem. Solve the, that kind of case. We also have, and this is, I'll close with this one. Um, it's, it's uh, kind, of, kind of an odd sort of thing. And it's uh, uh, the judges who attempt to come up with a good solution, they're trial judges, and on these vague rules, they come up with a solution. Case goes up on appeal. What do what the Court of Appeals do? They have a pre-hearing conference, which is says, settle this turkey. 
No, we won't settle it in, in one of the important cases. They go up for oral argument, and suddenly it's like old-fashioned law school. Professor Kingsfield rides again. Every one of the three judge panels just gives it to the lawyers. And appellate judges are very good at giving it to the lawyers. May it please the court, you're talking this kind of thing, and what do you mean saying something like this? And this, 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 and so forth, and, and this kind of thing. When they, got through with the, when they got through with the whole thing, the lawyers called their clients, and they settled the case. So part of this, the, the clear rules do this. Now, very quickly, a couple of points, and then I'm all through. One, one of the things we should do is go on beyond default rules and find out what the practices are in setting up structures to get economic work done in uh, what kind of contracts are being drafted. And a number of people are starting this and looking into it. That's good. Uh, and then I would say what I'd love to see is something like Harvard Business School studies of something like uh, Boeing's catastrophe. You know, they were going to snap all the pieces together to build the Dreamliner. They were all, my son, who's an engineer and a pilot, says they, thought that they had the dream of Legos. Just snap the wings and snap the tail. It, it didn't. It's Legos with the pieces that don't fit. That's the first side. And then they finally got some Dreamliners out, and they discover lithium batteries are a bad idea, and so forth. But what did law contracts and such have to do with that? I think we could learn a lot. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Notes on the margin is a little bit of an understatement, but we'll uh, <laughs> leave it at that. Um, our next speaker is Professor Avery Katz, the Milton Handler Professor of Law and Vice Dean at Columbia Law School. And I'll say a, a, just one comment in introducing it. That's a more of a biographical, autobiographical comment. My own. Uh, uh, I first heard uh, Professor Katz soon after he started teaching uh, law and economics give a presentation. I was an LLM student, and I heard that one month into my program. And after hearing your presentation, Avery, I decided that's what I want to do. I think he's done the most interesting work, I still regard it, the most interesting work in combining game theory and contract doctrine, um, and uh, has become a, a, an important contributor in the area of law and economics and contract law. Well, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming, and Douglas, thank you for writing the book. And I'm, I'm pleased to be on this panel, especially with Stuart Macaulay, although perhaps not following Stuart Macaulay. Uh, this, this is a lovely book, and uh, I, I think all of you would want to read it. It is uh, ostensibly aimed at an audience of students, uh, first-year students. Uh, the blurbs on the back indicate that it's uh, an excellent primer. Uh, that it's geared to the law student or non-economically oriented law professor who wants to be introduced. I, I think that this book is just as valuable and perhaps more valuable to uh, pe people like me who know these cases very well. Um, these the various chapters cover famous cases and famous concepts that I've been thinking about and teaching about for 25 years. And Douglas manages to, to my surprise and pleasure, to offer fresh insights throughout the book. So that, in, in a way, it's like going to a concert and, and hearing, seeing on the program a familiar piece of music that one knows very well, uh, and hearing a, a fresh and stirring interpretation. And uh, it's 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 very nice. Um, I have. Uh, let, let me give an ex let me give uh, an example. I initially said a couple of examples in my notes, but then I would never finish within 20 minutes. So let me give you one, one example. And it's in uh, Douglas's chapter about Raffles v. Wickle House, which, uh, as anyone who's taken contract so far knows, is the case of the two ships peerless. Uh, how many of you were 1Ls? Okay, so the 1Ls I understand have not had contracts yet. Okay, so you probably would not have run into the two ships peerless yet. Um, and in a way, I'm sorry to spoil the story for you, but, but in, in, in another way, the, the story really cannot be spoiled. It's, it's, it's a wonderful story. And so for those who haven't heard it, let me say a little bit about what it is. Um, there's a, there's a, Raffles v. Wicklehouse is an 1864 English case uh, involving a contract uh, to sell a certain amount of cotton that is being shipped uh, from Bombay in India to Liverpool in England, a long, slow boat. Uh, for a certain, 
and, and the contractors is for cotton to be shipped ex peerless, which means on the ship peerless. Um, and the, the cotton shows up and it gets to the dock in Liverpool and it, it turns out that the buyer doesn't want to take it. Um, and why does the buyer not want to take it? Well, it, it might have something to do with the fact that the price of cotton has plunged in between the time of the making of the contract and the arrival of the good ship peerless. But the, uh, the buyer says, in fact, this isn't the cotton I agreed to buy. I agreed to buy cotton on another ship peerless. And in fact, in fact there was another ship peerless. In, in fact, there were, this is not relevant to the case, but, but research by uh, the great legal historian Brian Simpson, my former colleague at Michigan and, and a longtime teacher at Chicago, is that actually around that time in, in the waters between England and India, there, there were actually nine ships that were chartered under the name Peerless. Um, but but only, only, only two of which were engaged in shipping cotton from Bombay to, to Liverpool. And as I say, I, I can't really spoil this. Um, but in any event, there was one ship that left in October 1960. <coughs> 1863, and another ship that left in December 1863, and when one ship got there, the buyer said, no, 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 I meant the other ship. I don't have to have this, this cotton. Um, went to court. Um, there's an argument about whether or not uh, whether or not the buyer has to take the cotton, even though it's on the wrong ship, peerless. Um, so this, this case is, is famous for a, a lot of reasons. It's, 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 again, there's something striking about the facts. There's something very literary about the opinion. Uh, th those of you that, that have, have purchased a, a copy of my colleague Marvin Sherlstein's short book on, on, on contracts may recall that there's a picture of the good ship peerless, or at least one of them, on the cover of Marvin's book. Um, Raffles v. Wickelhouse is uh, a, 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 a famous case, a, a, a long-studied case. Um, it also happens to be the locus of a famous argument uh, about interpretation of contracts between Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, writing in the late 19th century, and Grant Gilmore, uh, writing in the mid-1970s in an influential book called The Death of Contract, very thin but influential book. Um, that was, that was uh, pretty much all the rage when, when Douglas and I went to law school. Death of Contract was written in 1974. Douglas began law school in 1975. I, I was a few years later. Um, and and, and ev everybody, you know, the, the, the intellectual climate was such that, that contract, Gilmore's thesis was contract was breaking down as a field. Uh, contract was becoming toward in the future. There would only be contorts. Uh, and, and that's how lawyers would have to think about, about uh, private law. Um, so so the, the, partic the particular dispute between um, Gilmore and Holmes has to do with how one justifies the decision in Raffles v. Wickelhaus. And, and the decision is, it, it's, it's in some ways a very puzzling case. Um, the, uh, the seller who is the plaintiff comes up and sends his barrister up, and the barrister begins to say, uh, this, this is, you know, the contract was for the sale of, of cotton ex peerless. Ex peerless merely means if the ship goes down, the contract is at an end. But now that the cotton is here, it's irrelevant. And the judges don't buy this. And the judges start peppering the barrister uh, with, with all kinds of questions, which, which um, Gilmore calls foolish and misplaced and, and, and misunderstanding the argument. And they, and they say, well, isn't this just like goods which are in the warehouse of, with one name and somebody buys goods in a warehouse with a different name? Uh, or is, is, it, is it like a wine that comes from an estate in France, but it turns out there's another estate of the same name in Spain, and the delivery is from goods of wine from the estate in Spain, and of course that's, that's very different, and the lords presumably could have, you know, lords in those days would have been very knowledgeable about the difference between wines in Spain and wines, wines in, in France. Some judges are today, too. Um, and, and, the, and, and so the, the barrister is somewhat flustered and gets through the argument somehow. Um, and then uh, the, the other side's barrister stands up and gets one sentence out of his mouth, and then the court says, we don't need to hear anymore. That's it. Defendant wins. Per curiam, no opinion. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a very puzzling case. Or, or at least it, and it was, was to me until I read Douglas's analysis of it. Um, and actually, now I don't think it's puzzling at all. Um, the, 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 the crux of the debate between Holmes and Gilmore had to do with whether or not this uh, 
outcome is best to be explained on an objective theory of interpretation or a subjective theory of interpretation. And so the traditional answer for many, it wasn't Holmes's answer, was, was that this case illustrates uh, that there needs to be a meeting of the minds in order to have a binding contract, that because Raffles had in mind one ship peerless and Whittles had in mind another ship peerless, there was no meeting of the minds, and therefore there couldn't be a contract and meeting of the minds Obviously, that has to do with some subjective theory of interpretation. And Holmes says, uh, in, in uh, I think it's in Path of the Law, um, says, no, 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 it's not, um, Holmes says, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading from a quotation in Gilmore, Holmes says, um, it's, the law has nothing to do with the actual state of parties' minds. Uh, contract and contract is elsewhere. It must go by externals, judge parties by their conduct. Um, the true ground of the decision was not that each party meant a different thing from another, but that each said a different thing. That one of them said peerless, and the other one said peerless, and they were saying different things. So, so Gilmore, uh, Gilmore has nothing but ridicule for this position, and Gilmore says, um, even for Holmes, this was an extraordinary tour de force. Uh, that, that to say that they were saying different things when they spoke the same word peerless, this is the epitome of, of a subjective interpretation case. How could it be objective? And so Douglas, Douglas explains, uh, rightly I think, that, that, that Gilmore was just wrong and Holmes was right. That it is possible for, the, for parties to use the same word and to say different things. You know, how, how can this be possible? Well, it all depends upon what the meaning of say is. Not, not, not what the meaning of is is, but what the meaning of say is. <laughs> so if, if I, to say that I say something, it, it could mean that I manipulate the muscles of my larynx and my throat and my mouth, and, and certain vibrations of air come out of my mouth and in such a way that they could be picked up by some sort of oral receptor, such as another person's ears or a microphone. And we could say that's saying something. Um, or we could say saying something is a communication from one person to another. Uh, so if I go into a closet and say the word peerless, or if I go into a bodega in East Harlem and say the word peerless, have I said anything? Well, I've made noise, uh, but, but have I said anything? I, I, I don't speak Spanish. To my knowledge, peerless is not a word in Spanish. Um, it, it's likely that if I go into a closet and say peerless, I'm just making noise that nobody hears, and, and if I go into the bodega and say peerless, I'm making noise that somebody hears, but it's, it's noise, it's not saying something. And in order to say something, I, I need to engage in a communication with someone who can then make sense of what I'm saying, and that's what communication is. That's what language is. And for, so, so these are two possible definitions of say, but for the purposes of contracts, we have to mean the second definition. We have to mean communication. Uh, it, it can't just be about noise. And so what Holmes is saying, says Douglas, um, is that the parties said different things when they made the noise peerless because they were, they were engaged in what today we would call different interpretive communities. That in order to have communication, you have to have conventions about language, and people have to understand what words mean. Um, and if you say the word peerless to somebody who knows that there's an October boat and not a December boat, then it means one thing. Uh, and if you say peerless to somebody who knows there's a December boat and not an October boat, then you mean another thing. In fact, you are saying different things. Um, and to figure out whose interpretation, whose interpretive community is, is authoritative, we then need to figure out you know, what is, which one's relevant, which one's reasonable. And that, that, and that, that, is, that is inherently, that's, that's not a subjective issue. Uh, because if the question is, were the parties part of the same interpretive community? Were they speaking the same language? That's, that's just an objective social fact. And we can look at you know, where they learn to speak and who they usually deal with in order to figure out our best guess as to whether, in the same, whether they're in the same community, and hence whether they were speaking to each other, and hence whether they used the same word. Um, and once one recognizes this point about language, then in a way the whole distinction between subjective and objective interpretation breaks down. Uh, that that they're, 
there has to be some sort of objective way of figuring out how people say something to each other um, in order to have communication at all. Now, as to peerless, as to the two ships peerless, uh, we have two people. They're both trading cotton in Bombay. They both are shipping. You, you, you would think that they're both part of the same community uh, and, and using the same convention. Um, is it really plausible that Raffles and Wickelhouse were using different conventions with regard to the words ex-peerless? Now, Raffles said, or at least Raffles' lawyer said, yes, they were using different conventions. Raffles' lawyer says, when people use the word ex-peerless or ex-any ship, ex-Titanic, um, they're, they're talking about, this is a way of allocating the risk if the ship goes down. Titanic went down, the peerless did not go down. Because the peerless did not go down, then the contract remains. And that's what ex-peerless means in our community of traders. Um, and Gilmore takes this pretty much at face value. It's not clear that the judges buy this because the judges start asking all kinds of irrelevant questions about warehouses and wineries in France and Spain. Um, Douglas draws on, again, this important historical work by our mutual colleague Brian Simpson regarding the, the cotton market. And, and for Douglas and for, and for Brian, the key point is that in this context at this time, the cotton traders had recently developed the innovation of futures contracts, contracts to deliver cotton at a particular time. And this became important. Well, again, it's cotton. It's 1864. Uh, there's lots of things happening in 1862 and 1863 and 1864 that is causing the world price of cotton to bounce all over the place. Uh, and uh, you know, if these are futures contracts, then whether it was on the October peerless or the December peerless is very relevant. Uh, you, you can't, I mean, again, travel was slow. You couldn't be sure that the peerless that left in December wouldn't overtake the peerless that left in October. But it wasn't possible to contract contingent on arrival because you didn't know when that would be. You had to contract contingent on departure. So Douglas says, given, given the facts of the case and given, given Brian Simpson's research, it's a lot more likely that the parties intended, meant, communicated, or at least communicated, had the meaning, said different delivery dates. You know, and, not, and, and therefore, the difference was material. Uh, but none of this matters uh, for, for reasons that I never understood until Douglas pointed it out. And, and the key point that, that, that changes the way that I think about Raffles v. Wickelhouse is that the case was up before the Lords on a demur. It was, the, it was on a demur. And so the demur says, Raffles is saying, the claim that the party said different things is irrelevant. There's, it, it can't make a difference to whether or not there's a contract. Wickelhouse does not have to show that there is a material difference between the October peerless and the December peerless. Wickelhouse only needs to show that there could be a difference. Because if there could be a difference, then there's a tribal issue of fact, and the demur is inappropriate. Okay. And that's why, thus the relevance of the Lord's questions. It's not, it's not that this was like wine or warehouses. It's that words can refer to different things that could be material, and we have to find out it's a factual matter and not a legal matter. So their questions were relevant, and it's not a hard case. It's an easy case, and it should have been procured. Um, so I've been teaching this case for 25 years, um, and I really never appreciated the significance of the demur. I understood, you know, I saw, yes, it's a demur, and I've, you know, been a lawyer for 30 years. I, I understand the difference between a demur and other procedural postures, but I never put it all together and got it, and it solves the puzzle. So th that's in chapter two. Can I go just a little bit over? Okay. Um, the book is filled with things like that. Every chapter has something like that. And, and, and I had to go into that kind of deep detail to explain why that chapter was, was you know, so good. Now, there's an irony about the book. Um, and uh, Douglas, here's where I maybe disagree with Douglas. So Douglas, Douglas intends the book as a statement of uh, basic principles, or, or at least he says that the book is a statement of similar principles, which I guess comes to the same thing. Um, Douglas says um, the Anglo-American, the thesis of the book, the fundamental theme of the book is that the law of contract does organize itself around a handful of straightforward ideas. Uh, but the, you know, the contribution of the book, I think, is, is not the basic ideas. 
the contribution of the book is the deep and contextual and sophisticated application and deployment of historical evidence and linguistic evidence and legal theory all together in, in what, uh, well, if it, were, if, it, if, it were, if it were a judicial opinion, we'd call, we'd call the grand style. He does discuss basic principles, um, but it's not a primer. Objectively, it's not a primer. He says it's a primer, or he, but, but objectively, it's not a primer. Um, it is a thorough, thoughtful tour of many of the great cases and principles of contract law by one of our most thoughtful commentators. Um, is it fourth, first year students reading? Yes, you'll get what you can out of it. And then later on, 25 years, if you still care about the case of Raffles v. Whipple House, which you know, most of you will not unless you're teaching contracts, you can read it again. The, you know, the, book, you know, the, book, the book is a real success. Um, does it succeed on its own terms? Um, no, but, but I, think it's, I think it's mistaken as to what its own terms are. It's really a wonderful book. There's a lot of things I can say about Ariel, and, uh, but I'll just say the things that are objectively true, not my own subjective thoughts. Uh, I think Ariel has been doing uh, what I consider to be the most interesting work in law and economics of private law in the last 10, 15 years. Been incredibly prolific, incredibly creative, and I think it's a, it's a great opportunity to invite uh, someone who has had such a broad spectrum of views or, or, or vision on private law generally, including torts and restitution, to comment on this contract book. Please. Thank you very much. You, you want that? Yeah, I would prefer to I'm also very glad to be on that panel with Stuart McCarthy, but also with you, Everett. So, uh, <laughs> I was I was recursively referring to those who went before me, but my Okay, so I enjoyed very much the book. It's an excellent, fascinating book. I think what is very special about the book, in addition to what you've already heard about the book, is that it uh, speaks to all kinds of audience. So it's an excellent book for first year or second year or uh, you know, for students in general. It's an excellent book to, uh, uh, to professors uh, doing law and economics, but also to professors that do not do law and economics. And I think that it could also be of a very, it could be of a very high interest also for practitioners because you know, anybody can read the book from the perspective that he wants to read it and would get a lot of benefit. So it's really amazing. You can see through the book the wisdom of contract law as well as the wisdom of the author. So I would like to focus on one of the chapters. You know, I can talk for hours about that book. So I decided to focus on one chapter and to say a few words about that. I don't think that it's mainly about disagreement with what uh, Douglas argues in that chapter, but you know, here and there there will be maybe some disagreements. But uh, so the chapter I'm going to focus is on chapter four, which is about expectation damages or so the principle, the expectation damages principles and its limits. So let me start with the, uh, the efficient breach idea, which is part of that part. So generally, for those of you who don't know, what is the idea of efficient breach? Generally, the idea is that the, uh, the performing party, once he compensates the victim for expectation damages, he would breach the contract efficiently, assuming he fully compensates the victim. So for example, uh, if uh, this is an example uh, borrowed from uh, Richard Posner's uh, famous writings on efficient breach, right? He was, uh, as far as I know, the first one to you know, make a make it kind of a very important uh, idea uh, underlying uh, non-economics of contracts. So the example, which also is used in the book, is uh, suppose I sell you something, I'm a seller, you are the buyer. You are buyer one, and suppose buyer, after I make the contract, and you pay me a certain amount of money, now time of performance, and assume now that there is a second buyer, and the second buyer offers me enough money to fully compensate the first buyer at the level of expectation damages, and still some money would be left to me, that means that the breach is efficient. Because at the end, efficiency-wise, uh, performing with the second buyer would increase social welfare. Now, this is, uh, I mean, there is uh, the underlying assumption here that indeed the victim is fully compensated. We all know that sometimes this assumption is not very realistic, and then the efficient breach could be a bit less, uh, you know, well, less uh, could be 
I mean, sometimes it could still be efficient to bridge, but then it becomes a little bit, a little bit more complicated. Now, but what's interesting about that is that uh, uh, there is uh, quite a lot of, uh, well, there are some experimental evidence uh, that shows that, uh, first of all, lay people react completely differently to the efficient bridge idea than economists. And there are also uh, transactors <laughs> that react differently to the idea of efficient bridge. Uh, Stuart McCauley and Lisa Bernstein, and I think more Lisa in that regard uh, to, uh, to Professor McCauley, so she wrote about it quite a lot. The transactors, when you ask them about efficient bridge, most of them would say, well, uh, we do not accept it. We don't want to have efficient bridges. And uh, more, more than that, you know, if you ask uh, moral philosophers, many of them would say, what does it mean, efficient bridge? When you make a contract, you undertake upon yourself a performance, right? If uh, I promise to do something, the contract is to do it and not to pay damages instead. Right, so this is a kind of an argument that uh, many people would argue. So I think that one way to answer these questions, and this is something that I didn't find in the book, although, you know, maybe it's completely, uh, not maybe, it is completely trivial to learn economics people. And for learn economics people, I think that it's even not necessary. But if you want to talk into broader audience, including people that don't like very much the idea of efficiency in law economics, I think what you need to do is actually to explain the idea of incomplete contracts and the idea that, and that's the most important point, that the efficient bridge, assuming full compensation, serves the interest not only of the bridging party, but also of the victim. Now, why it's important? You know, in tort law, for example, when we speak about providing incentives to the injurer to behave efficiently, it is enough that the injurer would internalize the harms caused to other people, and then he would behave efficiently. And, and the, so the efficiency argument is that in this way, social welfare is increased. With contracts, sometimes we think that the argument is the same. In fact, Douglas, in his book, makes the argument which could create the impression that actually it's exactly the same argument. Actually, he says that also in contracts, once there is internalization, Right? The British party pays for the harm done, he would behave efficiently, and the reader, the non-loan economics reader, could get the impression that efficiency-wise, like social welfare would be enhanced, but what about the victim? In fact, many people would react, just a second, if the British party breaches the contract and got some benefits, maybe that those benefits under like fairness notion should go, <laughs> should go, fairness is the word that I could say here? So, <laughs> So uh, should go to the to the to buy one in my example, or at least some, if not all the benefits, at least some of the benefits. Now, of course, there are all kinds of answers to this argument, but I think that the simple way to answer it, to just to show that they actually to try to convince the 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 one who asked that question that uh, there is something here more than just increasing the overall efficiencies, that that's actually also the interest of the victim from the ex-ante point of view, right? So think about it in this way. Once the breaching party can breach the contract and hold the benefits, right, keep the benefits of the breach, since the party knows that in advance, the breaching party ex-ante, the potentially breaching party ex-ante when he makes the contract would compensate the victim for the benefit he's going to get, for the expected benefit he's going to get from a breach. So once there is full compensation, both parties' interest is to have such a contract. So the idea of incomplete contracts, I think, is uh, essential, especially if you want to explain the idea of efficient breach to non-non-economics people. Now, a second point I would like to make which is maybe that, so this is a more kind of a semantic uh, point, right, about uh, you know, how if you want to convince people who are coming from different uh, fields. The second point I would like to make is about an interesting distinction that quite rarely made in the law economics literature, and this is the distinction between two types of efficient breaches. One, I would call it like loss-avoiding breaches as opposed to gain-seeking breaches. Right, so it's interesting that when you look into Richard Posner's writings, as well as to Douglas' book, you see that the examples are almost always about uh, gain-seeking breaches. What does it mean, gain-seeking breaches? So the example I just gave you. So I'm the seller, there is buyer one, and then buyer one shows up and offers me more money. I breach the contract with buyer one in order to gain more money. Right? So that's one example. <coughs> now, 
So this is Richard Posner's and also Douglas Byrd's main example of efficient bridge. But there is a different type of efficient bridge. I would even say that maybe more common. I'm not sure empirically whether it's more common, but you know, anecdotally, maybe even more common. And you can find it more in Chevelle's writings. So it's interesting that usually Richard Posner prefers that example, while Stephen Chevelle from Harvard, he prefers the second example. And the second example of a loss-avoiding bridge is the following situation. So I promise to do something for you, to perform some work for you. And at some point of time, the cost of performance exceeds your expectation. So the value that you ascribe to the work I should do for you is 100. But for some reason, at a certain point, the, my cost in performing is 110. So efficiency-wise, this is a case in which we want to write it from an efficiency point of view, and also, as I said before, from the perspective of both parties under the assumption of full, full compensation of the parties. So this is another situation that we want to have efficient bridge. Now, from I think most economists or legal, uh, uh, legal economists would say that from an economic point of view, these two bridges are exactly the same. So the argument is exactly the same. And the argument is that in both cases, it is efficient to breach the contract because that would either increase social welfare or even increase the surplus that both parties can extract from the contract. Now, interestingly, also here, there are experimental studies that shows very clearly that lay people, and not only lay people, also transactors, but most of the experiments about lay people distinguish in a very clear way between these two bridges. So those people that generally don't like the idea of efficient bridge, and the experiment shows that most lay people don't like the idea of efficient bridge, they like it, they would dislike it more dislike it more when, you could guess, right, when it's gain-seeking breaches. So if I breach a contract to gain more money, people, you know, lay people would resent more than if I do it in order to avoid a loss. You know, there is a kind of intuition here, right? One case, I try to gain more, and in the other case, I try to avoid a loss. So people have more sympathy to people that try to avoid losses and not, not try just to gain more. Now, I think that it's interesting also to think about those two uh, type of bridges also from an economic point of view. So I don't have enough time, so I'll, got, I'll just try to give a very you know, preliminary intuition why, why maybe those two cases are different also from an efficiency perspective. And try to think about the structure of the incentives of the bridging parties, of the bridging party in both cases. So it goes in this way. When it's about and, and, and especially how the victim, right, anticipating that structure, whether he would be willing to allow the other party to breach and pay damages, right? If we think about this kind of an incomplete contract, we should ask what the parties would like to have ex ante, what, what kind of uh, uh, default rule they would like to have, whether they would like to have a default rule which says that the breaching party could, the promissor could breach and pay damages, or maybe they prefer to have a rule which says, uh, uh, no, it's specific performance, it should not breach. So the, the simple idea is the following. From the victim's perspective, once it allows the breaching party to breach, to seek gains, the breaching, parties in seven, in se the, the breaching party has no constraints, right? So it's quite clear that what he would do, he would try to get a second buyer and that would be the pri his primary goal, namely he would do his best to find a second bidder that would pay more. On the other end, if it's about loss avoiding, the primary incentives of the breaching party is to decrease cost of performance. That's the primary goal. Because if he decreases cost of performance, he gains more for the co from the contract. So while in the first case, the primary incentives with the gain-seeking breaches, the primary incentives of the promissor is to breach, actually to increase the probability of breach because that's what serves his interests, while in the loss-avoiding case, the primary incentive is to try to decrease his costs and at the same time also decrease and not increase the probability of breach. And what I want to argue, I won't be able to go into more details, that that could also make a difference from an efficiency point of view. Now the last point, we have uh, two minutes, so, yeah? So the last point I have, 
many others, but since the time is over, I will make only just one uh, quick point. So the last point is about the victim's incentives. Right, so uh, it's interesting, if you look into the law economics writings on the, in the law and economics analysis of contract law, you would see that there is a lot of writings about the incentives of the promisor and much less writings about the incentives of the promisee. Now, Douglas actually deals with the incentives of the promisee when he discussed the over-reliance problem. What does it mean, the over-reliance problem? So the over-reliance is the following. Suppose I know that there is 50%, I'm the promisee, I'm the victim, I'm the potential victim. Suppose I know that there is 50% chances that you are going to breach the contract. And now I want to rely on the contract before I know for sure whether you are going to perform or not. So 50% chances of breach, 50 chances percent of performance. Now, the over-reliance problem says the following. Since I know that if you breaches the contract, I am fully compensated, I would invest too much in reliance. Because if I can rely now, and get a benefit, and at the end the contract will be performed, I'm going to capture the entire benefit. If instead the contract will be breached, I'm not going to suffer any harm because I'm insured that the other party would fully compensate me. So this is a problem of over-reliance. So Douglas argues, among other things, that one way to cure it, or uh, this kind of a suggestion that he has in his book, is that once you have liability for expectation damages and not for this type of reliance, then the victim would not have that incentive to over-rely. Although this is right, it creates other problems because sometimes the reliance is not over-reliance, it's a reasonable reliance. And sometimes, especially incidental reliance, as opposed to essential reliance, is something that you want the breaching party to pay for, otherwise the breaching party would not have efficient incentives. So another solution that was offered a long time ago by Bob Cooter was uh, to have liquidated damages, which is one of the solutions. So the promisee knows that if he breaches the contract, if the contract is breached, he's going to pay a liquidated amount of money, and it shows that then it would be uh, optimal reliance. Finally, I think that one of the interesting things to think, and then I will finish because I really don't have any time, as I can see. Uh, another interesting point to think about is uh, that sometimes the victim's incentive is just, not just about over-reliance, but about non-cooperation, which is completely different. It's not the same thing. So over-reliance is something which is similar to mitigation of damages, but before the time of the breach. Before you know that there will be a breach. Similar. There is a kind of analogy while cooperation meaning that sometimes the promisee could take steps, could take measures in order to reduce the likelihood of breach. This is something else. And this is uh, usually considered in a way irrelevant, uh, or it's almost not discussed in the, in, at least in the law economics literature, and in particular, so it, it, in, in particular, it's meant to be the last sentence, that uh, you know, it, it's interesting to think about why in American law, as opposed to all the other legal systems that I know, there is no a comparative fault defense in contracts, at least not in that name. Right? You know, in all the countries in the world that I know, which is among Israel, of course, but uh, England, Canada, all the European legal systems, they clearly have, for many years, a comparative fault defense, which, like in torts, you know, sometimes uh, breaches of contracts are very similar to accidents, in a way. So in all those legal systems, Sharing losses, apportioning losses between the parties is something very common. While in American contract law, you could find cases in which people would say, well, they didn't say it explicitly, but that's exactly what they did. Still, you cannot find a clear recognition of a comparative fault in the contracts, and that actually brings me back to the idea that the victim's incentives, I think, are still not taken seriously enough under American law, maybe, at least if you compare it to other legal systems. Thank you. Thank you. gave a sense of the, uh, I hope, of the different phases of the book, because I, I, I do talk about these stories, I do talk about Holmes and these general principles, and I do spend uh, some amount of time talking about uh, Richard Posner. I was actually relieved that, uh, not surprised to discover he read the book, but he sent me an email at like 1 a.m. in the morning uh, saying both that he liked the book and pointing out several typos. But I should... Um, I, sh I should also say that it's a real honor and privilege to be on, on, 
on the, the same, sitting at, and talking to the same program as Stuart Macaulay. And um, I, I, should, I should say that, that one of the lessons I learned from his scholarship was just the way in which you really can look at the background of these stories and use it as a tool to ask interesting questions. We understand that the legal holding itself is not the backstory, but the backstory can give you leverage on the question of what work law can do. And we don't always uh, reach, reach, reach the same answers, and, and Lisa Bernstein doesn't reach the same answers either, but I think we, we all have found this a, a useful way. And as I commend to all of you his, his work on, on the Hoffman case, which where, where he really does work hard to say, okay, wait a second, what was the behavior here? What were the promissory acts? What was the reliance? How do we think about that? And how do we under, understand this case and, and put it in perspective in a way that's, that's, that's very useful? Um, and then uh, with respect to Avery's observations about homes and language, I think one of the great privileges of teaching a first-year class, um, especially contracts, is to be able to access the, the great themes, to be able to access uh, what did Holmes think about this? What did Grant Gilmore think about this? What have other people thought about this? And just try to engage in an extended conversation. And at least in modern times, one of the people we've had to engage in extended conversations with is, is, is Richard Posner, again, one of the great judges of, of, of American jurisprudence, whose ideas I, I don't agree with. I, th I think Harold um, uh, <laughs> uh, may have given you a sense. I'm, I was, I'm a bigger fan of, 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 of efficient breach than, 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 in fact, in, than, in fact, I am. But I think anyone who cares about contracts and contract languages wants to engage with that conversation the way Harold did, the way the rest of us all have. And so, at any rate, I'm just very grateful that you came today. We have a couple of minutes left. I want to let people out maybe no later than 125. If anybody wants to ask a question or make a comment, Lisa, do you want to, sorry for putting you on the spot, any comment? Uh, uh, this is the time. Please. The traditional question. Uh, it's very funny because when you talked, Professor Farad, you said at some point talking about game breach, Buyer one, and then buyer one comes. Of course, we all understood that you meant buyer two, so we understood <laughs> what you said was not what you meant. And, and then we understood this because, of course, of the context. Because if you had started just saying this, we would have been puzzled, right? So it just shows that in this common law system, the context is fundamental to understand sometimes the, the facts of the, of the case. But it also shows that it can be very time-consuming for lawyers that haven't this time to do it. So isn't this the best argument for civil law, which has this <laughs> quality that uh, you know in advance what's going to happen? You have to, uh, um, and I don't even know whom to ask this question because I have such a brilliant panel of person. Maybe Professor Berg? Yeah, yeah well, I think... Uh, I, th I think there's a there's a danger of, of parochialism, uh, no matter where you're from, and and I think that it's it's a mistake to think that, and this is actually a point I I, I try to make in make in the book, which is is that is that uh, there are lots of le different legal systems in the world, and these different legal systems are <coughs> there are many developed civilized places in the world. They all have legal systems that work, and they all work relatively well because they didn't work relatively well, especially in an area like contracts where so much turns on it. We we, we, we wouldn't happen. I guess my own view um, is um, I don't have any priors about whether the common law system is better than the civil law system, um, but that there are fundamentally different languages, and part of what you need to do as a lawyer, if you want to practice in either regime, is to be able to speak in either language. And so, again, I think my, my, my Bayesian prior for what it's worth is, is that um, I'd be surprised if either system was vastly better than the other, because um, if either was vastly better than the other, then I, I think wouldn't survive. But um, I think we live in a world where there are multiple languages, and we live in a world where there are multiple different laws, and it's a good thing to be able to speak more than one. Maybe I would say one more thing about that. I think this paper, this book, is just as relevant to civil lawyers, not in the sense of here is a different way of doing things, but here is a way to think about the principles that, that systems, that both systems, the common law and the civil law, <coughs> share. Uh, and while they are addressed in different procedural, in different proceedings, and sometimes they, there are tweaks in the uh, results that are dictated by 
formal legal sources, I think that they have, there's so much in common. And the nice thing that the book does is manages to tease out some of these fundamental ideas that must be true also in civil law. And as far as I know, and I teach some comparative contract law, are very relevant to uh, European legal systems and civil law in general. Okay, I think maybe this is a good time to, uh, first of all, thank our uh, panelists who have come here and have prepared to talk in this panel, and to thank Professor Baird for writing the book. So, This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.